Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another spectacular guest. She's a Cardoza School of Law graduate and currently works as counsel to the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office. She has held past positions as of counsel, counsel to Helmer, Connolly, and Castleman, and, as, and was the Deputy Attorney General of the state of New Jersey. Ecstatic to have her on the podcast today, Mrs. Lisa Gotchman. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? I hope I said it. I I hope I said your last name right. Did I get it right? You did. You did. It it rhymes with watch, and you got it right. There we so, go. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast, Nate. This is this is going to be fun. Absolutely, I'm very happy to have you here as well, Lisa. Now, Lisa, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I am. Um, I was a deputy attorney general in the Division of Criminal Justice in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, there are many of us. The, the way you announced it, it was like I was the deputy attorney general, but there are hundreds of us. I was in the Division of Criminal Justice for 26 years. I retired in 2012, went to work for the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office in New Jersey for a couple of months. Then I went to Helmer Connolly and Castleman which is a private law firm, it took me six months to realize that that was not what my skill set was for. I am a career appellate prosecutor, and that's what I like to do. That's what I do best. And so I was able to um, get into the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office in Freehold, New Jersey. I work part-time there. I'm not a sworn prosecutor. Um, I'm of counsel, and I concentrate on appellate work. Um, I've been doing appellate work since I graduated from, actually, while I was in law school, I started doing appellate work. I was in the criminal law clinic at Cardozo, which was run by Professor Barry Sheck, who is more famous now for heading up the Innocence Project. But when I was in the um, criminal law clinic at Cardozo, there wasn't really such a thing as forensic DNA back then. <laughs> so I was in the precursor to uh, to the Innocence Project. And I wrote a portion of a brief to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in a habeas corpus case. Um, and I wrote, a, I wrote a, a point of the brief. And I was also on the court board in law school. And I knew that appellate litigation was just what I wanted to do. And that's I've made a career out of it for the last 40 years. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, the beautiful year of 1976. I wasn't around, unfortunately, um, but you were. You were at the University of Rochester. You majored in American history. So, you know, you left in 1980. What went into the decision and what sort of factors went into deciding to go to law school? Um, it's not very altruistic. When I graduated from college, I was accepted to the NYU um, program for master's in journalism. I had worked at the Campus Times at the University of Rochester, which at that time was a five-day-a-week, eight-page paper. And I was their features editor and I really enjoyed writing. And as we discussed before, I, I cannot, I have no imagination for fiction, but I love nonfiction writing. And I went to 
my first day of uh, graduate school, I was in a classroom with maybe 20 other people who had all been out in the field working for, you know, many years before they went back to school. And I kind of just had this gut reaction that this is not where I needed to be or wanted to be. So I went to the Dean's office and deferred admission for a year. And in the meantime, I was working at a publishing house in New York City, Houghton Mifflin, and I was their subsidiary rights. Well, I was an assistant to the, the subsidiary rights editor. And going back to, I want to go back to uh, high school for a second. Oh, sure. When I graduated high school in 1976, there weren't a lot of options for women. You could be a nurse, you could be a teacher, you could be a stay-at-home mom. And in my senior year of high school, because I was in the A-track, um, they put me in executive secretarial practice because the smart girls in high school, we weren't just going to be secretaries, we we're going to be executive secretaries. So I learned how to type on an electric typewriter and I learned shorthand. And I have to tell you, those were the best courses I ever took. They came in so handy. Um, so when, and they came in really handy when I was working at the publishing house because I was basically an executive secretarial position. And it paid $8,000 a year in New York City, which even back in 1980 was just not enough money to survive in New York. So I knew I had to do something and publishing was just, I loved the publishing field. I absolutely loved everything about it. My grandfather had been in publishing and I just, that's where I wanted to be. So I thought I would go to law school and get into the publishing field that way, either as a literary agent, you don't need a law degree to do that, but I thought it couldn't hurt. And it's funny because my agent's on my book um, is a lawyer. So <laughs> you can combine those two. Um, and so I decided to go to law school to go into the publishing field. And I really loved law school. Like the first day I went in, my parents were terrified that I was going to say, I don't want to do this either, the way I had done with the, the um, master's program in journalism. But I really, I knew immediately I was going to love law school. I loved, it, it's all like puzzles to me and how everything fits together. And I, I just love all of that. And, you know, your first year you take classes that everybody else is taking in every law school across the country, contracts, property, torts. And I knew that contracts is where I needed to focus because that's the basis of, of publishing law. But the summer between my first and second years of law school, I got an internship with the Legal Aid Trial Division in Brooklyn, New York. Unpaid internship, um, but I was hooked. One of my first assignments was drafting a memo, a search and seizure memo, trying to suppress the drugs that were found in our client's car that it appeared to be an unlawful search and seizure. And suddenly I was dealing with the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution in these intricate fact patterns and helping people. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And I really never looked back from that. I, I, I had a few, I went a few other directions during law school for one summer between this, my second and third year. I worked for a small entertainment firm and it was not 
terribly glamorous. Um, it, it was basically just doing, you know, motion work for, for people. Um, and then I was involved in Barry Sheck's criminal law clinic. And I wrote a point in a brief to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. I was also involved in the Moot Court Board. Um, I was one of the um, competitions editors. And I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I could combine my love of writing with my newfound love of the law. When I graduated from Cardozo, I got a position as a deputy I'm sorry, as an assistant prosecutor at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. And I was in its appellate section. And immediately I got to go into court. I got into the appellate court, um, the first department in New York. Um, and then I got to go argue in the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York. And I just loved all of it. I then moved to New Jersey um, when my, my my husband was working down in New Jersey. And so we moved down there and I was able to uh, get a position with the New Jersey Division of Criminal Justice in the Attorney General's office in Trenton. And I was doing pretty much what I did in the Bronx DA's office doing appellate work. And I really haven't regretted a single moment of it. Yeah, that, that's a fabulous, fabulous story there. Uh, I think it 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 certainly exemplifies the fact that there are truly are so many different paths in law that I have, you know, in doing this podcast and even previously in reading and such, uh, you know, it, it really there's so much you could do. And especially for yourself, your love for writing, the fact that you can combine that with the law really just shows that, you know, it, even if you do have a love of a certain industry or a certain profession, you can all there is always some way you can combine it with the law. And that's certainly what I've been saying. Uh, I'd like to say, though, it I, I'm not sure if you've listened to previous episodes of mine, but you're you're checking off all the boxes for the questions I like to ask. You spoke about the first year of law school. You spoke about the transitions in law school. You spoke about the experiences that you knew that, OK, maybe this isn't for me. You spoke about the experiences where you're like, this certainly is for me. Um, so let's talk about your time as a deputy attorney general. Um, how was that? Explain your experience. I mean, you were there for a very long time from 1987 to 2012. And how many years is that? You would know. It was 16 years there. Wow. 16 years. Yeah. That, that, uh, and then, yeah. And then after, well, after I left the division of criminal justice, I went to, I was working in another section in, um, well, I, I left the, uh, I'm sorry, but I, at some point, I left the appellate section. I went to work for the legislation section, and that was really interesting. And then I went to work for the Office of Insurance Fraud Prosecutor, and I was their appellate attorney. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I was there for, for actually 26 years altogether at the Division of Criminal Justice, and I was able to retire in 2012. But, you know, retiring and, and receiving your pension is different than sitting back and not doing anything. So that's why I continued to work because I still had it in me. Absolutely. That's great to hear. You're still you're still kicking, still going. You know, that's always a wonderful thing. Uh, and I hope later in my life, you know, I I love which con contrary to popular belief, I love working. Actually, it's 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 a very fulfilling thing for me. And I don't think I'll ever truly retire in my life. 
you know, maybe, maybe I do down the line. I don't know who, who knows, but I have to ask in, in your 26 year tenure, what are some of your favorite stories that are, or favorite experiences that you had working in that position? Well, my absolute favorite one was um, a case called, a little case called State versus Charles C. Apprendi Jr. that I got as a line appellate attorney um, while I was in the Division of Criminal Justice. Um, the issue was the constitutionality of New Jersey's hate crime statute, which allowed a judge rather than a jury to increase a defendant's sentence if the judge found that the crime, the underlying crime was committed with racial animus. And here the judge did make that finding and Charles Apprendi was sentenced to 12 years instead of 10 years following his plea of guilty to possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. He had fired his rifle into the home of the only black family in his neighborhood on four different nights in the winter of 1994 to send them a message that they were unwelcome in his neighborhood. So I argued the case before the New Jersey Appellate Division, a three judge panel, and I won. They said that the that this hate crime statute was constitutional. It did not infringe on the defendant's right to a jury trial by having the judge rather than a jury make the specific findings of fact of racial animosity. The case then went up to the New Jersey Supreme Court where I kept the case and I argued that as well. And it was very interesting because the night, you know, even though this was a sentencing case and it had to do with whether a judge or a jury makes the sentencing findings, at its heart, it was a hate crime. And the night before my argument in Trenton, before the New Jersey Supreme Court, Matthew Shepard passed away. Matthew Shepard was a gay student at the University of Wyoming. And one evening he went out to some dive bar, two guys pretended to befriend him. They ended up robbing him, beating him to a pulp and lashing him to a crude log fence in the middle of the Wyoming fields in, in freezing cold. Somebody found Matthew the next day. He was in the hospital for several days. He, and it became this huge national story. And he died the night before I argued Apprendi in the New Jersey Supreme Court. So suddenly the media was really interested in my case because it involved a hate crime. So there was a lot of press about that. And I was really feeling like I was doing something very important, that I was not just defending the hate crime for the family who had been terrorized by Charles C. Apprendi, but I was I was defending the, these a hate crime for everyone who has been the victim of a hate crime, whether it's because of their, their sex, their gender orientation, or their race. So several months later, really a year later, the Supreme Court of, the, of New Jersey found that the hate crime statute was constitutional. I had won. But in the meantime, while this litigation was percolating in the New Jersey uh, appellate courts, the Supreme Court of the United States waded into what is an element of the offense that the jury has to find? What is a sentencing factor that the judge could find? So when Charles C. Apprendi lost in the New Jersey Supreme Court, 
he decided he would file a petition for certiorari to the United States Supreme Court to see if the Supreme Court would look at the statute, look at what New Jersey did and whether or not it was constitutional. And I knew in my appellate heart of hearts that the Supreme Court was gonna take this case based on the two cases that had come out while my case was still in the New Jersey state courts. And on the Thanksgiving weekend of 1999, the nine justices, you know, granted certiorari in Apprendi's petition. And I was assigned to write the brief in the United States Supreme Court, but it was up in the air who was going to argue. And at one point, the Attorney General of New Jersey, John Farmer, who then went on to be, he was on the 9-11 Commission. Mm. He was the Dean of Rutgers Law School. And he was also um, the director of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers. And he wanted to argue this case because he knew this was his only shot to argue. My only shot to argue too, but you can't, you know, he's the attorney general of New Jersey. I'm just a lowly line deputy. So when he said he wanted to argue it, I was like, that's fine. Can I second seat you? At least I just wanted to sit in the courtroom next to him. And he said, fine. So I left him with a copy of my brief, which he read over the weekend. And he called me back to his office the next week. And he said, Lisa, I wrote, I read the brief. I, I can tell that he I, he's not going to have, well, he could tell he wasn't going to have enough time to get up to speed for the argument because you really, you have to devote a lot of time. You can't just walk into that courtroom. So he said he wanted me to argue it. So I got to argue in the United States Supreme Court and it was the most incredible experience of my life other than my wedding and giving birth to my child. <laughs> but career-wise, it was it's the pinnacle of anyone's career. And it was a really amazing experience. It was a very hot bench. This was when Rehnquist was on, was the chief justice. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only associate justice who was still on the bench that was there when I argued Apprendi is Justice Clarence Thomas. Everyone else has either retired or has passed away. But I argued before Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor and Antonin Scalia and Stephen Breyer and Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Clarence Thomas and David Souter and Anthony Kennedy and to be to be asked a question by Ruth Bader Ginsburg was just beyond belief. And it was really, I had a wonderful time. I realized <laughs> that not everyone has a great time arguing the Supreme Court. And it was just, it just worked out that way. I could have had a really bad argument too. But I remember at one point while Justice O'Connor was asking me a question, and sometimes a justice will ask you a question, not to trip you up, but just to telegraph to the other justices what their feelings are about the issue in front of them. And I knew that this was where she was going based on her votes in the two prior cases that had come out while my case was in the New Jersey Supreme Court. Now, I was a first year law student when Justice O'Connor was nominated and affirmed to be the first female associate justice in the United States Supreme Court. 
which is a really big deal for female attorneys back in 1981 and, or 80, 1980, 80, 81. And I remember thinking, while Justice O'Connor was asking me a question, this is so cool. Justice <laughs> O'Connor was asking me a question. And it really was just a, a, an experience that I, I never want to do it again. It can only go downhill from there. But I did end up reliving it. I, I, several years later, I wrote a book about it. It's called At the Altar of the Appellate Gods, Arguing in the United States Supreme Court. And it's about my adventures in Washington, D.C. It traces the arc of this hate crime through the trial court in Cumberland County, New Jersey, through the appellate courts in New, in New Jersey, the appellate division and the Supreme Court, and all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And it has lots of stories about what it's like to argue. It has stories about my husband and my son and my family and just all the chaos that was swirling around me while I'm trying to get ready to argue the most important case in my career. And so I got to relive it again um, by writing this book. So, you know, I've, I wrote it, I wrote the book so that it would be interesting to non-lawyers, but also interesting to lawyers. So it's not a difficult read. It's not heavy on the law. There's enough discussion of the law so that you can understand what the issues were. But it's, I wanted it to be entertaining as well as educational. And I think I hit the sweet spot. I mean, people have told me that I did hit that sweet spot. So I, without question, that was the highlight of my career. I have, I have to ask. Um, when you first initially found out that you were going to be speaking in front of the Supreme Court, what what was the sort of raw emotion there? I mean, you're you're standing in front of the the, the gods of, of of the legal system. Uh, I mean, I have I have to I have to know what what was the sort of emotion when when you know when John Farmer told you that well you know what you you're going to be arguing in front of the Supreme Court now. It was a it was a mixture of disbelief and relief and terror and you know everything that goes along. I mean, really, if somebody said to you, "You're going to argue in the U.S. Supreme Court in a couple of months," I mean, you just you seize up with all sorts of emotions. But I was really caught up in the maelstrom. I had I had other cases going on at the same time. That wasn't the only case I worked on. So it was really kind of, I just got pushed along. You know, you just get pushed along. You get, you, you do moot courts, you go to the moot courts. You, I had to go down to Washington DC and I attended a moot court at the National Association of Attorneys General. Then I, I went to a moot court um, at the Solicitor General's office because one of its deputies um, was coming in as amicus on my side on my case. And, and literally, I, I literally really didn't have time to obsess about it too much. The, the only time I got really like, oh, my God, this is really happening, was a couple of nights before the argument. There were three attorneys from the National Association of Attorneys General, um, the Supreme Court Counsel for NAG, um, Dan Schweitzer, and two fellows um, who 
worked at the at NAG for their attorneys from other states and they work at NAG for like three to four months a year. And um, and they were throwing all these hypotheticals at me. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, my argument is like two days away. And for a long time, it was this academic exercise where the actual argument date was far in the future. And all of a sudden it was a couple of days away. And I'm like, I can't argue in the US Supreme Court. How did I possibly think I could? And I just want to backtrack a couple of days from that. We, um, I had a lot of family and friends coming into Washington, D.C. to watch my argument. And on the Saturday night before the argument, which was on a Tuesday, we all caravaned up from Washington, D.C., from Capitol Hill, to um, a restaurant near my cousin's house, house in Bethesda, Maryland. And we're all driving back to the hotel, and my... I. We leave my car with my husband for the valet and I went upstairs to put my son in, in to bed. He was a, in third grade at the time. And I'm getting ready, I'm getting him ready for bed. And there's a knock on the hotel room door and my father and mother are there. And they said to me, Lisa, you have to come downstairs. Mom will stay with Jordan. Your car has been in an accident. I'm like, how can my car be in an accident? It's with the valet. How? And it turned out that the valet took my car, remember this is three nights before my argument, instead of driving on the roadway and turning right onto D Street to go into the underground garage at the Hyatt at Capitol Hill, he took the car down the sidewalk. He knocked over a United States mailbox that was bolted to the ground, a wrought iron garbage can that was bolted to the ground, he careened across the intersection. Thank goodness nobody was there because that's a busy intersection at New Jersey Avenue and D Street. He hit two parked cars that were parked on the, on the roadway, pushing them up onto the sidewalk where the um, National American Japanese Memorial now stands. And I just, I went downstairs and I just remember thinking, I don't need this stress. My argument's in three days. What the hell is going on? So when you, I needed to write a book about this. I needed people to understand that we just don't walk into a courtroom and argue. There's all sorts of chaos going around, you know, whether it's your family life or your kid's homework or other cases that you have to do or your car getting totaled. There's all sorts of stuff in the background that you have to rise above and put behind you and, and walk into that court and just do your job. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an admirable experience to hear from you. I think it, it's amazing. I didn't know about the car crash thing. That is insane. I don't, what's up? It's, with it's in the book. That's why, you know, that's why I wrote this book. Because just, first of all, I, I wanted to relive all of it. I finally had time. I started writing the book. I woke up one morning and I in, in May of 2019, and I said, you know, I want to write a book about this. I had been giving um, seminars about my case. But I wanted to write a book. And then the pandemic hit and I had lots of time to write the book. And I really was able to think about all these emotions and reactions and what I did and how I felt. My my husband would, you know, give me cues like, well, how did you feel about this or what happened then? And I was able to put this whole book together. And uh, it was it was really it was a lot of fun. It was it was a labor of love to write the book. And it was a labor of love to argue the case. Yeah, it, it it sounds like 
an experience that I think anyone would would want to experience. Uh, I mean, to to argue in front of your heroes uh, is yeah. just probably it's probably a life changing experience. Uh, you know, I I hope to have an experience like that in my life. Just, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met any of 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 the heroes that I have. Unfortunately, a lot of them have passed away because they're from like you know sixteen whatever. Uh, I like old books. I don't know, um, but. You know, I think it, it's a, such an important story to tell, uh, you know, so much adversity that you faced. What's up with the valet driver? That That's great. I hope he got fired. <laughs> you know, back then, I mean, we didn't even, the internet was kind of new back then. And um, the day we were battling, well, I should say my husband was battling the car insurance company because they didn't want to total the car, even though my car was totaled. And the day that the police report was issued, the insurance company called us up and they said, we're going to total your car. And so I've never read the police report, but I assume that the valet had some sort of a medical issue that had to have been disclosed, like, I don't know, epilepsy or something like that, that he did not disclose to his employer or he was high or he was drunk. And, you know, the, the insurance company couldn't fight that. So nobody was hurt. I think the, the driver may have, the valet may have, been hurt but you know nobody in my family was hurt and i i went i got a, I bought a new car i, mean, I got while i was because because it was at the hyatt regency on capitol hill for the remainder of my stay i got the use of the hyatt one which was their chauffeur driven lincoln town car <laughs> so um we got into the car and they drove me to the supreme court and let me out and had everybody see me coming out of a of a town car that was chauffeur driven so that was a lot of fun yeah i i have to ask did you ever have I, i'm i'm assuming you had a ton of opportunities talking to the media and such so so how was that i mean you you were you were a superstar at at the time i mean everyone's talking about lisa gotchman uh you know uh, around the time that you were arguing this what, what was sort of that experience with with all the media attention and 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 i mean the the pressure on your shoulders can you sort of describe that i've i've learned to um tune everything out that's going on around me while I argue. So while I was arguing with the US Supreme Court, um, to set the stage where you stand as the attorney arguing, is just a couple of feet away from the bench where the justices are. And the bench is slightly curved. There are nine people sitting there. So if I was addressing Justice Ginsburg, who was seated to my far left, I could not see in my peripheral vision Justice Stephen Breyer, who was sitting to my far left. And I'm sorry, my far right. And I was able to tune out everything that was on either side of me and behind me, because really arguing in the U.S. Supreme Court is like theater in the round. Behind you are the, the spectators. In front of you are the justices. To my left were the Supreme Court pool reporters. And... I knew that they were there, but I completely tuned all of that out. And I'm able to do that. If I were to turn around and talk to the audience or talk to the pool reporters, I would have been stammering and tripping over my words. But I get into my lawyer zone while I'm arguing and all of that just fades into the background. After the case was over, John Farmer and I left the courthouse through the main doors and we were walking down the steps and 
when you first get out of these main doors, and they're gorgeous, they're these like multiple ton brass doors, they're absolutely beautiful. And behind one of the gigantic columns at the top of the stairway was the, um, I'm sorry, the, the um, what am I thinking of? The press secretary for, <laughs> um, for John Farmer. And he confidently tells us that there's no press waiting for us. Fine, you know, it's a, Apprendi at the time was just a little sentencing case. Um, so we thought, well, that's, that's fine, it's just a little case. And we start walking down the steps and this was fun because there are people who are standing on the steps waiting to get into the next argument. Arguing in the United States Supreme Court is, it, it's a tourist attraction. So all of these people are waiting to get in to hear the next argument. And John Farmer and I are walking down the steps and everybody starts clapping for us. They have no idea who we are, but they're clapping for us. And at the bottom of the staircase um, is a phalanx of reporters that the press secretary had told us wasn't there. And John Farmer said to me, you know, you did a great job, you go talk to the press. And that was probably, you know, my biggest appearance before a national press corps. <laughs> there were, a, there was um, a reporter from CNN. Um, I don't know whether or not Linda Greenhouse was among the reporters standing outside of the courthouse after the argument was over, but she was there in the um, section for the press. And she wrote a very factually based article about the Apprendi argument that appeared in the New York Times the next day. And one of my other heroes, aside from Sandra Day O'Connor, is Linda Greenhouse. Um, the New York Times was my hometown newspaper. I grew up on Long Island. We got the New York Times every day. And she was really my only source of United States Supreme Court news. Remember, this is a long time before the internet. So if you wanted to read something about the US Supreme Court, you read it in the Washington uh, Post or the New York Times. Um, and so I was in, I was named in one of her articles the next day. And that was, that was the second best highlight of my career <laughs> was seeing my name in print in a Linda Greenhouse article. And she and I have become email friends since then. <laughs> and I'm, and she endorsed my book. And that was, that was an incredible thing because she was at the argument and then she endorsed my book and I'm just, it, it doesn't get better than that. Wow, that that is absolutely that's awesome. I I I I have no words. I mean, to to live to live out this sort of experience where you know the people that you looked up to are now you know talking to you as a, as a peer as 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 a as a person of, of a sort of importance um in society and and speaking on that importance. I know uh, previously we had spoke on the phone before. Uh, we did this podcast and you had talked about how important it was for you um, as a woman in law to sort of argue in front of the Supreme Court and, and become a sort of prominent figure for, for a short time there with your Supreme Court argument. Can you sort of describe that, how important it was as a woman uh, to sort of do what you did? That didn't really come into play so much. The, the one time that I really noticed it was when I was sitting at council table at the United States Supreme Court. There were seven attorneys there, myself, my opponent, Joseph O'Neill, who was an attorney, a 
private practitioner down in South Jersey who had the extraordinary luck of getting a case up to the United States Supreme Court. He sat with his one of his associates and an attorney from Sidley Austin who does um, pro bono work for Supreme Court cases. On my side of the table was myself, John Farmer, the attorney general. He ended up second seating me. Um, Edward Dumont, who came in as amicus on the state of New Jersey's behalf through the Solicitor General's Office of the United States Attorney's Office. And Michael Dreben, who was the chief of the criminal division of the Solicitor General's Office. Michael Dreben um, has argued over 108 cases in his career at the United States Supreme Court. And it was at that time that I realized of the seven attorneys sitting at council table that I was the only woman. And really, other than that, I can't say that it really like came into play. It mm. wasn't something I was aware of. When I went to law school, there were plenty of women in law school. There were plenty of women in the division of criminal justice. My supervisors were all women. So it didn't really dawn on me that this was an old boys club, but it was. Marlene Trestman, who is an author, did a study on the Supreme Court advocacy and women who have argued before the Supreme Court. And I think I was like the 519, something like that woman to appear before the United States Supreme Court, which doesn't, it sounds like it's a lot, but it's not. I think of, of the attorneys who argued in the 1999 term was when I argued Apprendi, maybe 20% of the arguing attorneys were female. But it didn't dawn on me then that that was a thing. So I have to ask, I uh, previously in, in one of my classes, I think it was last year, uh, we had listened to, um, it was it was public law, the class. I very much enjoyed it. Matthew Kirk was the teacher. I always endorse him. I always have to. He's my favorite teacher ever um, at UAlbany. So anyone out there listening who go to UAlbany, take Matthew Kirk's class, even if you're not even interested in the subject. It's just an experience. Um, but we were listening to the... Uh, Oh, I forget the name of it, but the, the flag burning case in Texas. And mm -hmm. we, were, we were talking about how when the person was arguing, because we were listening. Do you have an uh, Oyez, right? I don't know how to pronounce oh, it. Oyez. Is, is, oh, is it on there? Oyez, oh, Oyez. Oh, yeah. O-Y-E-Z is pronounced Oyez. Like, oh, yay. <laughs> is your Is your argument on there? Uh, yes, it is. Oh. You can listen to the argument um, on <laughs> Oyez.org. Um, um, and you can see the um, the transcript of the argument. Oh, well, I will certainly be listening to that later. In fact, I think what they do on Yoye is they have the, the photographs of the justices where they sit on the um, bench and they highlight that justice who's asking the question so you know who it is. Yes, I, I I had I've I've listened to a couple arguments. I don't I don't know you know I get bored sometimes, um, but I have listened to a couple arguments and they do have that function. I find it very very interesting. I like it actually. Um, but my professor kind of talked about the fact that when you're up there, you, you know, they say that you you hold on to the. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. What would the word be? The lector and the podium. Yes, you hold on to the lector for dear life. Were you holding life, on to exactly. the lector for dear life? Was that you? I yes, I, I held on to the, I, I remember <laughs> holding a red pen, so I had something to hold and holding on to the lectern, because I do 
I can walk around a lot in oral arguments or just gesture and it's just second nature to do that. But I try to, to keep still. <laughs> uh, so wonderful story. I love the experience. I, I, I'm fascinated by it, all the emotions. It, it inspires me, honestly, because, you know, the sort of ex that, that's the sort of experience I want to have in my life. Uh, you know, I, you know, meeting your heroes, being respected by your heroes, you know, even becoming email pals with them like you had. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing and an amazing thing to hear. But moving on from your time as uh, one of the deputy attorney generals in the office, you started working as a legal assistant at Burlington County and then of counsel at Helmer, Connolly and Castleman. And then you now work as the Monmouth as of counsel to the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office part-time. So tell us tell us a little bit about life after uh, working at the New Jersey office. What I love about working at the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office that I didn't really get at the Division of Criminal Justice, I'll backtrack a little. The Division of Criminal Justice appellate section at the time that I was there handles about 90% or more of all the appeals coming from the 21 counties in New Jersey. So we were the premier appellate section for the state. And I love that. I mean, you looked up a case that was argued in the New Jersey Supreme Court and chances are it was argued by, you know, somebody in my section and, you know, criminal one, criminal cases anyway. And, but, we were really in, I don't want to call it an ivory tower, but we were removed from the day-to-day -day in the trenches work of the prosecutor's offices, even though the cases came from the prosecutor's offices. And as an appellate attorney, you're just dealing with transcripts. You're dealing with written words. You're dealing with cases. There's no blood, guts, and gore. There's no interaction with the attorneys who tried the case. You really don't know anything. You don't even know where the case, where the crime occurred sometimes. Um, working in the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office and now living in Monmouth County, um, when I am assigned a case, I know who the assistant prosecutor is. I probably know who the defense attorney is. I know where the crime took place. I probably read about the crime taking place two years earlier. And I really appreciate being in that environment and not being so far removed from the actual cases. Like, my other favorite, I don't want to say favorite case. That's not really what I mean. The other case, aside from Apprendi, that is the most meaningful to me was a case called State versus Sean Milne. Sean Milne was a 14-year-old kid who raped and murdered his 12-year-old neighbor. And that case came to me while I was in the Division of Criminal Justice from um, Toms River, New Jersey. And that case went, I think it, it was in every court, state and federal. At one point, um, his he, was, he was convicted of, of murder. And at one point, the defendant's mother even wrote a petition to the United States Supreme Court uh, for certiorari for review. And I opposed that. I had to write the brief. I opposed that. They did not take the case. But the victim's mother came to every single court proceeding, every single one. And 
it made it so real for me. It made it so that I understood what she was going through as the mother of a 12-year-old who had been viciously murdered by her neighbor. And when you're that close to, when you're helping the victims in that way, when you know who the victims are or you know their families, it's so meaningful. It, it just becomes your life work to help these people who are struggling in the aftermath of a violent crime that have probably never had any interaction with the criminal justice system before, who never envisioned themselves in this situation. And so my time at the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office has been more personal to me than it was when I was in the Division of Criminal Justice. Yeah, I think that's important for people to hear as well. I think uh, working specifically in criminal justice and criminal cases that that there is also that human aspect, uh, you know, th that goes beyond the law, beyond pretty much anything, uh, you know, and, and the fact that as a prosecutor, you can really touch people's lives. I know, you know, working at the DA's office, I heard a lot of stories like that. Uh, you know, where some, you know, tragic accidents or, or you know, uh, in, in your case, you know, a, a murder, uh, you know, the, the sort of victims families help that, uh, you know, helping them out and, and, and allowing them to sort of have some sort of traumatic relief, uh, you know, yes. Seeing a person, you know, go to prison and, and put away and never having to, you know, that person never having to touch society again. I, I you know, I, I remember uh, I was at a, panel a, a legal panel i wasn't a part of the panel um but i was at uh watching a legal panel and and i remember one of the prosecutors they were an ada uh i believe it was saratoga county um and they were sort of talking about a similar case it was a car accident and you know the victim's mother was there and, and, and you know after they sentenced him and you know found him guilty uh, the jury did uh, she just turned around and and gave the you know she came over and gave a hug and and even the attorney started crying because uh, she's like, you know, it's bigger than law. It's it's, you know, it's human lives that we're talking about here. Human lives, exactly. And and I think that's a really, really important you know point to make that when you get in the sort of profession of criminal law, that, that there is that that you can truly make an impact on people's lives no matter what. Um, so moving on from that, switching gears a little bit. I have I this is this is the question I I keep asking I keep saying it's a weird question but you know it it's it's sort of taken shape in in this podcast and I like it now so you know I I ask it every every episode now um so what or the what are the sorts of things that you consume not food uh what are the sorts of things that you consume on a daily basis either the things that you're reading uh you know what you see on social media you know if there's specific people that you read every day you know what what, what sorts of things are, are crossing the transom of your mind every day um this is a little silly but i love to see i love to watch dog videos on instagram <laughs> um Right now, my husband and I are binging Succession. Oh, um, which is just unbelievable. So we're, we're in the middle of binging that. Um, and I'm actually, I, I I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I, I don't like fiction all that much because 
nine times out of 10, the ending of the story just is like, no, that's not how it should have ended. <laughs> um, and I happen to be reading right now a book by somebody who you just recently interviewed, Dan Cotter. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, I, I'm friends with him through LinkedIn. I don't know the man personally, but, you know, through LinkedIn. And he wrote a book on the chief justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. And it's really interesting. They're just little vignettes about each of the chief justices. And before that, I read a book about um, the Supreme Court written by Ian Milheiser, who writes for Vox. And, um, you know, and then but then there are times I think the fa my favorite thing to read about is Henry VIII and his six wives. I just love it. I love everything to do with Tudor England. And I just find, I, I find the soap opera and the political intrigue just mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And so I, I'll get into, I'll get into, you know, for a few months at a time, I'll just read books about Henry VIII and his wives. Wow, that that's amazing. I'll yeah. I'll have to look into that myself because now now I'm interested to see what was going on with Henry the Eighth. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating <laughs> because it was not. I mean, there was so much going on with Henry the Eighth, not just his wives, but the Church of England and and uh, it, 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 there's just so much. And do you know that he wrote? You know the song Green Sleeves. Look it up if you don't know it. He wrote the song Green Sleeves, which is just like you know nobody knows that. But, and the other thing that I do every single day that I have done this since I was in high school, I do the New York Times Crossword Puzzle in ink every single day. That's, that's that, my thing. That's a lovely that's tradition to have. I, I, I try yeah. to get into crossword puzzles. Sometimes they're, they're a little hard for me because, you know, I'm, I'm only 20 years old and, you know, I haven't read that much stuff, but sometimes, you know, they, they go, they go real far back in history. I'm like, damn, I, I Start start with the Monday and Tuesday puzzles. Those are the <laughs> easiest, and they get progressively harder as the week goes on. I I bet you're a, a superstar at it. I mean, you're probably knocking these out. No, no, I'm not. I'm not because I've actually attended a couple of the um, American Crossword Puzzle conventions hosted <laughs> by Will Shorts, who is the editor of the New York Times Crossword Puzzle, and it's timed. These are competitions, and they're timed. There are people who are just, they're, they're like, they're superhuman in doing this. It's unbelievable how quickly they can, you know, finish a very difficult puzzle while I'm still, you know, trying to figure out what the theme is. <laughs> well, I, I have to go back and I appreciate your binging of Succession. It really, it's one of my favorite shows. I watched it over the summer. My, my, my old roommate, Maurice, recommended to me because he was watching it. He's actually watching it again. So I was like, oh, I got, I got to check this. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm done with the show. Um, so it is amazing, amazing show. The acting is ridiculous. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, but Tom and Shiv, they're both Australian. They're putting on an English really? accent. Yeah, it was, I saw them on, I watched like this uh, YouTube video. They were doing like a panel on, on some uh, talk show and they started talking their regular accent. I was like, wait, what? So I that that makes it even better. That makes it even better because yeah. they're just phenomenal. I'm, I'm trying to avoid reading or watching anything about the show because I don't want any spoilers. Mm. So... I, I after the show is over, I will indulge in all of that. Oh, 
Absolutely. It, it it's it's fun looking into it and I think even the the re the fact it's based loosely not not on a true story but it's based loosely on the Murdochs. I also found yeah. I found that very interesting cuz you know there are some re real life components to it where you know it's so I I just love it. I I can't I can't say enough about it. Um We're we're having I can't say I'm enjoying it. I mean it's just it's so nerve-wracking and if I watch it I'll have anxiety dreams that night. It was like when I when we binged Breaking Bad, I was having um, nightmares every night. But then I'd go back and watch some more. Oh, Breaking Bad is another one. It's it's in my top three. I love I love yeah. Breaking Bad. I mean, you know Walter White, one of the one of the best characters ever created in TV history. But I Absolutely. will I will say this though, and not a knock on Walter White, but there wouldn't be a Walter White without Tony Soprano. I'm a I'm a huge Sopranos fan. I love it so much. It's my favorite show ever. So I, I had, I had to shamelessly plug it there. I, I couldn't not. I love this. Have you ever watched The Sopranos? You know, I didn't because my son was a little kid in the nineties. Ah. So my, uh, my cultural evolution in the nineties is Barney, Disney, <laughs> um, not beat, um, Backstreet Boys. I do love the Backstreet Boys because of my son. Um, so I didn't, I, I couldn't watch The Sopranos back then. One of these days, but I, I find it's it's just got to be so gory to binge all at once. It's got to yeah, be a lot, but I'll get there. We'll get there. It, it's definitely a very long show. Our episodes, you know, it's a, it's an investment. You gotta, you gotta, you yeah. gotta put some time aside and be like, all right, I'm, I'm, watch, I'm sitting down and watching The Sopranos. Uh, so second to last question here, you know, you're working part-time. You know, you're still doing your thing, but what does an ideal Sunday morning or Friday night look for Lisa? Well, I'm very fortunate. My husband and I live near Asbury Park, New Jersey, mm -hmm. which has not only does it have a gorgeous boardwalk and fabulous restaurants and bars, it has an incredible music scene. So, in fact, this past weekend was a music festival called Light of Day that benefits um, research for Parkinson's disease. And many of the same musicians come back year after year, and then there are new ones. And it's it's like days-long activities and, and music. Um, and it was just an incredible weekend. So we spent our time in Asbury Park eating out, going to the galleries, walking the boardwalk. Um, Saturday morning is my day to do the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle because I get it delivered on Saturday. I'm, I'm old fashioned. I still get the, the actual physical paper. Um, Sunday morning is, I don't know, sleep late, get up, go to Asbury <laughs> Park or come back. We, we watch, we'll watch golf. We'll, I'll do yoga. Um, and and watch succession. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you're living the life. Asbury Park as well. I didn't I I've never heard of Asbury Park. And my mother, I told you before, my mother is from the beautiful state of New Jersey. So shout out to my mom. Say this will test her now. If she's really listening to this, she tells me to listen to every episode. So mom, I'm expecting a text message soon being like, Oh, I heard your shout out. <laughs> Look at that. I'm really <laughs> testing her now. Um, but final question here, I ask this at the end of every episode. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring law students, the current law students, and the legal professionals in the world? Um, keep an open mind as to what you want to do. Um, you want to make a lot of money? Don't go into criminal law. 
you want to have a really incredibly fulfilling career, go into criminal law. Um, but getting back to a point that you made before, in terms of like when you're taking classes, whether you're in college or law school, take a class because the professor is phenomenal, because a good professor will make any subject great, and a bad professor will make every subject terrible. <laughs> and one of my favorite classes in law school was tax law, because the professor was just so good. Um, and it could have really been an awful experience, but I really did enjoy tax law because the professor was great. Um, so, but but follow your heart in law. If you want to make a lot of money, you want to go to a big law firm, if that's what, if that's what you want to do, that's absolutely fine. Will you get into court immediately? Probably not. Will you work on interesting cases that are yours rather than just like one little portion of some, you know, huge thing, then, then big law is the way to go. Um, but I have found being in criminal law, doing um, appellate work to be absolutely perfect for me. Um, I may not have a second or third house, but I do have a house <laughs> and it's been fine. Well, Lisa, I couldn't agree more. And that's the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on thank the podcast, you. Lisa. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.